man. Then uh, this morning is Sunday. It is September 27, 2009. May not mean a lot to uh, Western Christians, but this evening at 6 p.m. starts what is known as the Day of Atonement in Israel, uh, when the sun goes down. Our message today is going to be called Take, Take Away. Uh, so if you're taking notes, you want to write Take Away, you want to write that it is the Day of Atonement. It's a special service because we just ended the Days of All in Israel. Uh, these were ten days where the whole nation sat and waited and fasted and contemplated what God was doing in their lives and what they might need to do and how to respond as they waited for a very special day called the Day of Atonement to come. Uh, before we move any further in our service, I want to pray for some things. I want to pray for the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. And the reason that I want to do that is of all the peoples on the planet, God picked them as a special nation to make an example of for everyone else. If you have ever been in the position of having a father that was a principal or working for your uh, dad or any of those kind of scenarios, you know exactly what it can be like to be singled out and held to a different standard. Well, the nation of Israel was. Uh, anybody's dad ever a coach of their teens? Think about that. Well, this is that way. And so they've received blessing upon blessing, but they've also received stricter standards. Uh, a lot of uh, burden bringing you the Word of God, persecuted by the nations. We want to pray for them. And in praying for that nation, we want to pray for their leader, a guy named Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who seems to be seriously contemplating bombing Iran at the moment. And we want to pray for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. And most of all, we want to pray for God's plans among the nations. It matters what happens in the world powers. It will affect your lives. In America, we often feel insulated from everything else. Uh, what happens in the world, but specifically with Israel, will absolutely affect your daily life. And we need to pray. Uh, as we pray, I want you to hear this scripture. It comes from Zechariah 13. It's the first verse. It says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Can you imagine that the word of God set aside one day in which an entire nation would be cleansed? Come on, some of you are not that far out of high school. Can you imagine a day when even a single high school would be cleansed? No matter who it was in it, would suddenly belong to God. They would have a heart for him. The Bible promises such a day for Israel. Let's pray for them. Mighty God, we lift up your nation. We lift up the nation of Israel. And we ask, Lord, that your word would become reality in the nations today. That we would see Israel saved. We're asking, Lord, for Benjamin Netanyahu to be given wisdom. For the IDF to be protected in all of their national affairs. Lord God, for the people of Israel to receive what was promised. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the lessons that have been preserved through your people. And we honor your great name because you are a covenant-keeping God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Before we begin to get into the Day of Atonement, we need to look at some cultural distinctions between us and Israelis, especially ancient Israelis. Uh, how many of you know that if you go to other countries, sometimes there are other customs, right? You, you know, uh, I had a landlord that was Japanese, and when I knocked on his door and started to walk in, he looked at my feet. And I looked, and I saw that there's a pile of shoes there. And I realized in his home, they don't walk in with shoes. You're aware there's 
different cultural customs everywhere you go. Does it matter then if Jesus is Swedish? Some of you are saying no and some are saying yes. His customs and the way that he acted would be affected by the way that he lived. And if Jesus had been Japanese and raised during a period where the samurai culture was important, Jesus might have dressed like a samurai. But Jesus wasn't Japanese. He also wasn't American. This means he never put on a three-piece business suit. It meant that he never drove a Lincoln Continental. It means that he never ate in a McDonald's. He's not from South Louisiana, didn't like crawfish. Jesus was Jewish. He was Jewish, and his book, the book about God, comes to us from the Jewish people. So it's important to understand their customs. What is at the root of this problem is this book comes to us from a land that is far to the east of us. And the eastern book is sometimes not understood in a western mindset. Is there anybody in here that honestly thinks it's a little stupid to take off your boots before you walk on carpet? I mean, come on, do all of you take off your shoes before you walk on carpet? A couple of you in here do. Some of you don't, though, right? Why don't you? It's not your custom. So if you're reading about somebody who did that, it might not strike you as incredibly important. You might not understand why it says they took off their shoes. You might not understand why it was important. Much of the Bible is that way. And as we begin to understand the culture behind the Bible, we start to understand a message that God is speaking to us. Maybe the most important thing that you could understand is that Eastern peoples, but especially Hebrews, they look for an idea that is demonstrated in action and in function. They look for pictures. They do this more than they look for any abstract intellectual constructs that solely are demonstrated through intellect. What I mean is this. In the East, if you want to know what someone is like, you look to see how they act. In the West, when you want to know what someone is like, you say, what do you do for a living? And if he's a doctor, he must be a good guy, right? In the East, they would look to see what you do on a daily basis. They look for something like a sign, a demonstrated action. How do you choose your friends? Somebody says they're your friend, does that make them your friend? We've got a row full of friends back there, Nolan. Tell me something. Does it make somebody a friend simply because they say you're friends? No. In fact, you ever had somebody that said they were a friend and stabbed you right in the back? Happens all of the time. Jesus even redefined family structures. Jesus goes so far as to say, my mother, my father, my family is he who does the will of God. That is difficult to understand in a Western mindset. In an Eastern mindset, it's easy. He says, those who are actually doing what my Father in Heaven does are my family. You understand? It's the difference between logic and demonstrated action. The way that the Bible says this is in Corinthians 1, verse 21. I'm going to read it to you, and I rarely lie when I'm preaching, and especially on Communion Sunday, I won't do it. You can trust me. It says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews look for something demonstrated, and Greeks, Western peoples, look for something that makes sense to us. When a Hebrew person wants to write the word praise, in ancient Hebrew, you drew a man with his hands raised. That's the first letter in the word Hallel that is praised, right? To us, that, that, that's not part of our lives. We simply would describe what praise is and hope that you can put one plus two 
together to equal three. Theirs was pictorial. If they wanted to describe somebody as angry, they said, Adam's nostrils are flared. Because sometimes when men get mad, they... So sometimes when they would describe anger, they didn't use the word anger, they would say his nostrils are flared. Do you understand the difference between a demonstrated action and looking for wisdom? Well, with that in mind then, what we need to begin to grab is that the Bible, the Bible itself, draws us a picture. It's like a mosaic written upon the earth through God's people that you can look at and see what God is like, what He wants to do. It is His demonstrated action. It is not simply a letter of facts that go together in a sequential order that make you believe. He's not trying to convince you through argument. He is showing you through example, through demonstrated action, through function. Maybe there's one more thing, though, that we have to get to before we begin to draw this picture that is the mosaic, the movie, if you will, of God's working upon the earth. When you think of heaven, saints, in fact, close your eyes. Think of heaven for a moment. Your eyes are closed. You're now in heaven. Where is it? Well, the country music stars say it's by a jukebox when you die. Some say it's by a fishing hole. Martin Luther said that it was a place with golden streets, uh, carousels, and lollipops. <laughs> Have you ever had the expression, man, this food is so good, it's, it's heaven? Is it? People tend to think of heaven as a variety of things. If we're going to read a book that tells us about the domain of God, we need to understand what their thoughts about heaven were. Or are, rather. Just like if you're going into a Japanese person's home and you thought you were being polite, you would need to understand what they considered polite. Right? Not what you consider polite. It would be rude in my house for you to get to my house and say, dude, take off those shoes before you come in here. That would be like something's wrong with your shoes, right? You stepped in something. But in a different culture, it is completely acceptable. In fact, it's impolite not to. There are cultural differences between us and the men and women that wrote this down that keep us from understanding what God is trying to show. So we want to bring them out. And maybe the biggest one about heaven is to us, heaven is a place that you go to. Heaven is a place somewhere else that when you die, you're there. And we're excited about that. Leaving this old stinking world behind. Just going to this place where everything is perfect. There is no such construct in the Hebrew mind. In fact, when they pray, they pray to someone called Melech Olam, which is king of the universe. They see God as a king. And what do kings have? Kingdoms. So heaven is where God's kingdom is. This is not just a geographical location. It is anywhere where God's dominion, his rulership, is. This is why when they pray, they pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was literally telling us to pray that God's rule would be extended from where God is upon the entire earth. And when they preached, they said the kingdom is at hand. It's about to envelop you. This meant you didn't have to travel from here to there. Right where you are, the kingdom could begin within you as you acknowledged who God is. This put you in his realm in the heavenlies. Now, when they looked out from the earth, they looked and they called everything from them and up, everything above the surface of the earth, like just above the grass, all the way as far, far as they could imagine, they called heavens, plural. They make no distinction between them. 
They say a bird flies in heaven. They say God lives in heaven. They say I just threw that baseball and it went through heaven to Adam. That doesn't sound like a place that is on a planet somewhere else, does it? When they wanted to make distinction between sky and stars and just speaking about God's rulership, they called one the first heaven, like rungs on a ladder, the sky. One the second heavens, that would be where the astronauts go, the starry realm. And the other, to make a distinction, they called the third heaven. This was a way of saying there's a place where God's will is perfectly done. It's done every time. It's never not done. That is the third heaven. There is a place between there and where I stand where warfare goes on. This is the power of the air the Bible describes. That's a radically different picture than most Christians have. We think of God and we think of a lake of fire called hell in some other place with lollipops and jukeboxes that we call heaven. The Bible does not present that. It presents heaven as God's rulership on earth, and when it is perfected, we have a new heaven and a new earth right here. That's important to understand because the Hebrew people are not waiting to leave the earth. They're waiting for God's rulership to dwell with them perfectly on earth. Aren't you glad that it is possible for God to dwell with you now? Not to have to wait till you die? Live carefully your whole life long, Brandon. Don't eat too much, don't drive too fast, don't wear clothes too tight, and don't hang out with women that do. Get ready. Get ready because one day you will get to die. Isn't that good news? And when you die, you will go to heaven. This is pretty much what's preached. This is not the Hebrew construct of what heaven is. Heaven is Brandon can live right now in God's rulership and he can extend that to other people in his life. That is really different. I'm not saying there is not a place that you go when you die. Obviously, your spirit has to go somewhere. It goes to the place where God is. This is how we get the idea of heaven. But that's not the whole story. And in this mindset, it becomes important because there are men who saw into a realm where God's will was done perfectly. Turn to Hebrews 8. You're going to talk to me today. You're going to yes. There we go. In Hebrews 8, listen to this verse. It'll be the fifth verse. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. When Moses ascended onto a mountain to go to meet with God, who had descended in a cloud, man rose up and God came down. It's funny, the Bible teaches when faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down. You will never make a move towards God where He is not making a move towards you. If you come to Him, He will in no way cast you out. If you have been taught that your best is not good enough, they lied to you. It's not good enough to atone for you, but it is certainly good enough to get you credited with something you couldn't earn on your own. 
Because our Father is not willing that not one of you would perish. He is not looking to crush you. He is not looking to hurt you. He is looking to meet with you. So he picked a ruler of a nation named Moshe. We call him Moses. The Hebrews called him Moshe. Do you like it when people mispronounce your name? Right? My name's Stevens. And people call me Stephens and Stephens and Stevenson and anything except Stevens. And the truth is, I don't really care. There's not much noble about my last name. My kids will make it that maybe, but nobody before me really did. But if you're going to learn about a specific group of people that God designed their culture, it does make a difference. Because when we read and the names are Americanized, we think of them as Americans, and they weren't. Be like, there's a barber over here named Jackson. If I just walked in and say, hey, I'm going to call you Ralph. Ralph's not his name. And then I'm talking to Fred, and I said, let me tell you about my barber, Ralph. What did Fred just picture? You know, maybe a fat Irishman, but certainly not a Vietnamese barber. Right? When we change their names, when we change the cultural setting, all of the sudden, the images start to change. We begin to picture them in our lives rather than us in their setting. So we're going to roll back that clock today. We're going to look at it differently. The things that Moshe Moses built, he saw into the heavens, and he built them according to a design of something that he saw. Man, you talk about cool. Has anybody in here seen a unicorn? <coughs> a unicorn. Come on, like Napoleon Dynamite's girlfriend drew, right? You don't know? Okay. Nobody's seen a unicorn? Come on now, raise your hand if you've seen a unicorn. I'm not going to call on you. Oh, they're so smart. <laughs> Nobody in here has ever seen a unicorn. You've seen the rendering and image of somebody that said they saw a unicorn, right? You've heard descriptions of it, but have you ever seen one? Not at all. How many of you in here have ever seen the wind? No jokes about what can be broken and what can't. You see effects, but you've never seen it. You can hear a description. You see movement, but you cannot see it. Moses saw something men don't normally see. He saw buildings. He saw labors. He saw lampstands. He saw wooden boxes. He saw veils of temples. He saw golden rings. And he took that description and he began to build something on earth so that when men looked at what was on earth, they would begin to see what God's kingdom looked like. How about that? The ultimate picture of what God is like is found in the image of Jesus. That ought to be comforting. That means he's a lot like you. Or another way to say it is, you are a lot like him. If you thought of him as so very different from you, something's wrong. You were made in his image. It's just been a little tarnished. Been rolled in the mud a little bit. His desire is not to crush you. In fact, He likes you. Is that hard for you? To say God likes you? It's funny. The strange little dorky kind of Christian movements I come from run around and say, God loves you. God loves you. You know, And it's usually somebody that you cannot relate to in a strange suit and a strange haircut and a strange tone of voice. And He'll look at you, right? And you're maybe working on your car or something. Maybe you've got the music you like that he doesn't listen to. And he walks up and says, you know, Jesus 
this match, you, you know, keep a few feet away. It feels odd. It feels strange. God is not like that. He knows you intimately. That means that sometimes the Bible describes him as angry. Sometimes the Bible describes him as laughing. Sometimes the Bible describes him as sorrowful, pain in his heart. He made you according to a pattern that is like him, but like all things that you copy. We have a copier back here, and if I copy this note, it will look pretty much like this. If I copy the copy of a copy, the more times I do that, the more times it degrades. And the problem with human beings is when you look around you, you are seeing degraded copies. It means a lot of times, even though we're made after the same image and you can make out some of the general characteristics, it doesn't really look like God anymore. And the Bible shows us a picture of what God looks like so we can be renewed, we can be refreshed, we can be rewashed. Moses built according to a pattern he saw. The things on earth were meant to picture or represent things existent in heaven. The things on earth were meant to picture something in heaven. So do you think that it doesn't matter what they look like? doesn't matter what they did? To the extent that you want to see what God is like, you need to look to see what it represented, what they looked like. Just like looking at a picture of Cassidy will show you what Cassidy is like. If you look at a picture of me, it depends on what time period in my life <laughs> as to how much it looks like me today. God doesn't change. He is not like a shifting shadow. To see a picture of God in 1600 B.C. and a picture of God in 1600 A.D. is the same God. He is not degrading. The colors, the details, the layout are not random. It's not coincidental. It's intentional and it's meant to communicate something to the human race. Turn to the book of Leviticus. That'll be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I know when I say turn to the book of Leviticus, you're like... <sighs> Somebody asked me here recently, look man, I, I, I heard what you said about reading and I read the New Testament. You know, that was good. And I started in the Old Testament and I'm kind of hung up in... Uh, I, they paused for me and said, Leviticus? They said, yeah, uh, is that stuff for us? Let me show you some ways it is for you. Look at Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. I know y'all think I don't listen to you when I talk, and then you hear yourselves in my sermons. Just be glad it's good. <laughs> Leviticus 23, start with me in the first verse. The Lord said to Moshe, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts. Who do the feasts belong to? God, my appointed feasts. The Lord says, these are my appointed feast. The appointed feast of the Lord, which you are to proclaim. They were given to Israel for a reason. These feasts belong to God, but God said to his people, you proclaim them. Another word to say proclaim, friends, is preach. Israel would be preaching these festivals. He called them sacred assemblies. Proclaim them as sacred assemblies. It's funny, when we think of preaching, you think of what I am doing now. But remember, these are Eastern peoples, and they don't value logic in the way that they value demonstration. That's why I went through all of that earlier. So how would Israel proclaim this? They would simply stand and speak to the nations around them. The Lord says, no. That's how the other nations would do it. 
Israel does it through their very actions. So that nations watching Israel could go, that is a strange little country. They have interesting customs. What is it that they're doing again? And in watching what they did, because everything that Israel was building was a shadow and a copy of something in heaven, it would be like watching a TV program about God. Come on now, how many of you like to read? Okay, so we got about 25% of us. How many of you like to watch a good movie? That is amazing. Our God set it up so that something was on display. You could hear it. You could see it. In many cases, you could smell it and taste it. The Lord wanted to get through all of your sensory perception a message about Him. And what do we do? We dismiss it all as old. How many times have you been told the Bible is boring? How many times have you thought if the Bible isn't boring, certainly the Old Testament is? And it was meant to display something about God. The thief comes to steal. He comes to kill and he comes to destroy. And in tarnishing the nation of Israel's image, he has robbed you of the vision of what God is like. <coughs> By the way, sacred assemblies, what an interesting thing. These proclamations to the whole world, the Bible says... Their rehearsals. The word mikra in the scripture is sacred assembly. Mikra is Hebrew for sacred assembly, holy convocation. A way we would say it is holiday. You ever thought about the word holiday? Holy day. Right? Now, it make you wonder some of our holidays, right? I mean, I think the year after Katrina hit New Orleans, they had a gay and lesbian holiday. That's like an oxymoron, isn't it? Again, lesbian holy day. Doesn't work so much, does it? Not picking on gay and lesbian. It just simply is a contradiction in terms. It's not sending the right picture, even though it might make logical sense to people. God is interesting in our actions displaying something. I'm just curious as we move, do your actions display a love for God? Or is it only something you've reasoned in your mind? Because He's interested in what your actions display. So the word mikra is a Hebrew word that would normally be convocation, like holiday. But it also means rehearsal. I want you to proclaim these holy rehearsals to all of the world. I want you to think about that. Imagine that you showed up in a church and it's not Sunday. It's Friday evening. And you saw people you saw people dressed in regular clothes, and they're walking down an aisle. And there's some six-foot-tall icicle up here, and maybe a hearth. And they're walking down an aisle. Are they getting married? No, they're not. There's no bridesmaids coming in, pretending to throw something. They don't have it, but they're pretending to throw it. There's a little boy standing over here, you know. Everybody's hoping that he's not adjusting himself or doing anything stupid, but he's standing there holding a pillow. It doesn't have anything on it. What are they doing? They're rehearsing for something that is surely going to happen. It's going to happen the next day. It's a wedding rehearsal. These feasts are a shadow and a type of something that is surely going to happen. And they repeated them over and over and over. Anybody in here been on an athletic team ever? Good. Billy, when you were on that athletic team, you probably had some plays that you practiced and practiced. And you typically practiced them four days 
and then perform them on one. Or practice them on six days and perform them on one. You rep a play. You run off tackle. You run off tackle. You run off tackle. So that when you get in the game, running off tackle is second nature. God reps something. He reps it over and over and over and over. It's a pictorial display before the world so that when the reality happens, we'll understand it. How many times do you have to see somebody pull the trigger and another man fall before you understand what's happening? To the point that you can even take your hand now and go, and you know what we're trying to communicate even though there's no gun. You understand what I'm telling you? This was an action that God was showing the people over and over and over for 1,600 years so that one day when it happened, we would recognize the reality. He is trying to teach us. And it's not boring. He didn't expect you to simply read about it. He didn't expect you to simply hear about it. He wanted it displayed in one nation for the whole world's benefit. Practice after practice. We used to go scout other teams to see what they were rehearsing. So that on game day, we knew what they might do. Our God has been rehearsing something before the whole world in His people. So that on that day, they will know what He's going to do. Come on, saints, that's good. That is good. But are you interested in what God is doing? Are you only interested in what you're doing? Because that really is the division, isn't it? That really is, there is a group of people that are being called out, that have been selected by God, that have become interested in, Lord, what is it that you're trying to do? What's your plan for me? And there's another group of people that don't care, don't want to think about it. Just look, quit all that religious stuff, okay? And sometimes it's the church's fault. Sometimes the church has mistreated people. Sometimes the church has been so disgusting, I don't want to be anywhere around them. Other times that's just an excuse because we're not interested in what God is doing. I don't know which you are, but you better find out. You better find out. Because the scripture says that our God looks down from heaven upon all mankind. He considers everything that they do. He's considering your actions, not your words. He's considering your actions. The order of these rehearsals was important. We start off in the first month of the year with something called Passover or Pesach. We move to unleavened bread and then first fruits. These feasts can be likened unto a man who is born again. Death has passed him over. Passover means death passed you over. This is what happens when we get on God's teeth. And then unleavened bread was a time period where your whole house would be searched by the light of God's word. And you would remove everything from it that was not going God's way. And then first fruit meant that you began to bring the very best of what you had to the king of the universe. This is a picture of salvation. It was rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. Some of you have found the reality and understand exactly what it's about. Others have no idea but need to pray for revelation. All of those feasts happened in quick succession in the beginning of the first part of the year. Truthfully, it was not the first part of the year, but God simply said, today for you is going to be the first part of the year, and he restarted their calendar. Come on now. You've never been in a place in life where you needed to restart the calendar? You ever got a few weeks into school? You skipped too many classes. You threw too many notes to some little girl on the front row. And now you're behind and you feel like you could never catch up. You never been there? You never feel like you've 
messed it up so bad with mom, with dad, that it can't be recovered? Thinking of an escape? What if everybody that was going to commit suicide, you could reach that moment and say, wait, 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 wait. We can start your life over right now. Today for you can be the first day of a new life. Nobody kills themselves because they are brand new and everything's clean and good. Kill themselves because they feel like they fouled it up too bad to continue. So God wanted to communicate through a pictorial event. It can be started over. And then after this starting over, there is a long time period where Israel was simply told, you wait for something called Shavuot. And when the seventh month came, God is into sevens. He always has been. You can say it's his lucky number. He's not rolling dice, saints. He's determined the outcome. Your life is not random. It's not an accident. He's not just letting it ride. The king of the universe said, you wait for a trumpet. And when they heard a trumpet, they knew that Israel's redemption would draw near. It began ten days of all. This was a time period of introspection where you began to consider some things. Has my community sinned? Come on now, have you ever even been worried if your community sinned? Not very many. You might be worried if your household sinned. Is dad cheating on mom? That could concern you. Who's that guy that keeps coming to the house when somebody's calling? That could concern you, huh? Communal sin? Israel began to think about communal sin. Has anybody in our community offended God in some way? Not because he's angry and he wants to smash us, but because we want to get with his program. During these ten days, they also began to examine their personal sin began to think about the ways in which they were not with God's program. Ten days could be a long time, especially if you didn't do anything but sit and think about this. Huh? It's hard for us to sit for ten minutes. But a whole nation took a ten-day break to make sure they were right with God. Are some of you keeping yourself so busy you don't have time to think about God? Maybe we could learn something from the picture that God is proclaiming through his people. The most important thing about the days of all of them, let's imagine on day one you thought about community sin. On day two you thought about your sin. On the next eight days you thought about the ways in which you wanted to turn from that and ask God to forgive you. By the tenth day, you're probably done thinking about all of that, huh? God appointed a day in which you could be done thinking about all of your failures. You could be done with everything that had held you from his presence. He appointed a day that was to be like a party where an entire nation got a new start and felt born again. They felt new life. He appointed a day, a day, when a whole nation knew what it was like to have God dwell with them. He did this to proclaim something over and over and over, trying to reach not just those people. But you, if you'll spend some time thinking about the ways in which your life is not going in God's direction, He will show you a way in which He can dwell with you. Turn with me to Leviticus 16.
The Lord spoke to Moshe after the death of his two sons, of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moshe, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place. Behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now some people read this and they say, Oh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of death and destruction. Look, God killed somebody. Let me ask you something. You may not like Barack Obama, or you may love him. But if you had to arrange a meeting with him, do you think it would be on your terms or his? Do you think you could call the President of the United States and say, hey, look, dude, I was thinking, you and me need to get together. Okay? Clear whatever you're doing. I want to meet with you. And i tell you what else. I want you to wear flip-flops. I want you to wear Bermuda shorts. And I'd really like to see you in a tank top. Leave your Marlboros at home and meet me at Burger King. Right? Can you imagine telling the President of the United States, meet me at Burger King, dude. That is where I like to eat. Be there. And yet this is the way people approach who the Hebrews call Malek Olam, the king of the universe. They think they can meet with him on their own terms. I can serve God wherever I am. I know he called me to that church, but I'm going to this one because I like it better. The services are shorter. The preacher doesn't talk about anything that has to do with anything. They got such good donuts, my God. They buy Krispy Kremes. <laughs> Meeting with God on your terms is as ridiculous as trying to meet with the President of the United States in a Burger King wearing flip-flops, Bermuda shorts, and a wife beater. It is. And yet, that's what you hear all of the time. I meet with God anywhere. He knows me. I know him. He knows my heart. It'd be sad if it wasn't so ridiculously ludicrous. And you know what? I don't just hear it from the lost. The supposed body of Christ is stupid enough. And I use stupid in the sense of Proverbs 12. They cannot accept correction, so they are stupid. Stupid enough. To believe something like that. The very first thing that God wanted his people to know about a day of atonement is it does not come unless you meet with this foreign dignitary on his terms. You want atonement from God, the first thing you need to recognize is he is above you, you are below him. In the socioeconomic status, in the social stratosphere, you don't begin to measure up to him. But he loves you and wants to meet with you. So he is going to tell you what you must do to meet with him. Who do you think is going to travel the greatest distance, him or you? You ever said, hey, dude, let's, let's meet somewhere. He said, sure. You drive 47 miles, meet me at my doorstep. Is that really meeting with someone? And yet that's what God does. He spans the greatest distance and he meets with us. But it must be in a prescribed way. The father ran to meet his prodigal son. He ran. You're not in the position of the father. You're in the position of the prodigal son. He will run to meet with you, but you still must meet with him on his terms. He's a willing participant. Are you? Look at verse 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. 
with a young bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on a sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to, lie, to tie the linen sash around him and put on a linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. I get it. That may seem as strange to you as walking into somebody's house and them staring at your feet waiting for you to take off your shoes. It may seem as strange to you as eating, laying on your left arm and eating with your right hand, as opposed to a table with a a fork and a knife. Lots of customs in the world seem strange. But once you begin to understand them, live in the culture, all of a sudden you see a purpose to it. It's funny, I went to eat with some friends from South Africa last night. And they were very excited to bring me a dish from their culture. Right? To me it tasted very much like many things in my culture. It was not incredibly unique, and yet there were unique characteristics about it that I could appreciate because they were sharing with me something that was intimate to them. God let a man see into the heavenlies so that that man could share something with us that was uniquely intimate to God. It was his culture. So these things are not random happenstance. They're not without Meaning, when you look at the events that occur in this, the first thing that happens is a man must deal with his sin. If he's going to enter into this place, he must deal with his sin. He must be washed. And then he is to put on something. Remember, this is a rehearsal. And then he is to make atonement for other people. This is kind of like when the king of the universe shows up and he has dealt with his own sins, he beat it every time it showed up. He didn't actually even have it. He cast it down every time he was tempted. He allowed himself to be washed. And then he made an atonement for all of mankind. As I was thinking about this, I began to think about the things that are in this tabernacle area because it is a picture of what God is like. And the description of these events is a description of a movie of what it is like when God wants to meet with His people. And the first thing that I thought about is there's a brazen altar out here. The first step in the movie, the first chapter in the book is that something, something must come under judgment for you to meet with God. Jesus took that judgment for you. Brazen, bronze, is a sign of judgment in the Bible. Something has to die to make right what is wrong. A debt has to be paid. Then there's a bronze labor. You have to look squarely into the face of what had to be done for you. Your God is willing to span the greatest distance to meet with you. He's willing to set aside a particular day. But you must look it in the face. These people repeated this ritual over and over and over. A goat was killed, blood was splattered in your face, and then you went to a giant laver, and you looked in it, and it was polished so that you saw yourself covered in blood. You knew it wasn't your blood, but you deserved it as if it was. And then what did you do? You washed that off. Because God cleanses you, and He washes you, because He's preparing you to meet with Him. He wants you to acknowledge 
that He is the King of the universe. You are not. You don't deserve to meet with Him, but He made a way. He wants you to be washed so that you can move into His presence. When you move into His presence, there's a building called the Holy Place. And you walk in, and there's bread. And the King James Bible calls it showbread. And to us, especially the young people in the United States, we think showbread. What is that? I mean, are you kidding me? You know, why not a taco? Why not sushi? You know, why not a Chinese buffet? I'm making you hungry. <laughs> to the Hebrew people in their culture, the bread was something that sustained your very life. It was the basis of your nutrition. What God caused to come out of the ground caused you to stay alive. They didn't get to go to Walmart. And God had 12 special loaves of it that when you entered into His presence, there was something that sustained you. And there is no word in Hebrew for showbread. There is no word for sacred bread. Those words don't exist. The word is pawnee. And it means the special edification that comes from being near the face of God. When you are cleansed, when you move into God's presence, there is a special edification. There is a life-sustaining power that begins to enter you when God's face turns towards you. This is why He taught His people to pray that the Lord would be gracious to you, that He would turn His face towards you. Then you moved on from the showbread and you would look in the same room and you would find an altar of incense. It was like a sweet-smelling aroma. God's getting it even through the nose. Sweet-smelling aroma when people prayed to Him, when they spoke with Him. Do you have some people you hate to talk to? I mean, when you see them on the phone, Come on, Dakota. Somebody calls you go, <coughs> not here. Right? Not me, is it? Yeah. God wanted you to understand that He desires to talk to you like women desire to wear perfume. It's pleasing to the senses. He wants interaction with you. Come on now. There was one thing, though. There was a veil. And this veil was a barrier. And it's like, you can come this far, but you can't come in here. And the reason that you can't is there has to be somebody special who's going to make a way. I want all mankind to draw close to me. And I want interaction with you, says God. But there's only one guy who's going to be able to come behind this vessel. When we begin in Leviticus 16... We start reading about the men who are coming behind the veil. He's a special guy. And he's not just a priest. A priest is somebody who stands for God. That's an amazing thought if you hate me. Just because I'm not Catholic doesn't mean I'm not a priest. Stand for God. But he is the highest of them. He's the highest of the people on the earth that stands for God. That's who we're reading about in Leviticus 16. And even he must deal with the sin, must be washed, and then he must put on sacred garments. I want to read to you about these sacred garments real quickly. I found something. In 1913, at Princeton, somebody translated a letter. And it's a letter from a man in the 250 B.C. era who is Jewish. And he's writing to friends who are not Jewish about having watched the Day of Atonement, which is what we're reading about. I want you to listen to a description in his words. You know, men have not been that much different. You know, he didn't have an IMAX theater to go to. He'd never seen the movie 300. But what he did see was the Day of Atonement, and you've never seen that. Let's listen to his description. 
We were greatly astonished when we saw Eleazar engaged in the ministration. At the mode of his dress and majesty of his appearance, which was revealed in the robe which he wore, and the precious stones upon his person. There were golden bells upon his garment, which reached down to his feet, giving forth a peculiar kind of melody. He's describing the sound that he made when he walked. And on both sides of them were pomegranates and variegated flowers of a wonderful hue. He's describing a fragrance. He was girded, and the girdle of his conspicuous beauty woven in the most beautiful of colors. On his breast he wore the oracle of God, as it was called, on which twelve stones of different kinds were inset and fastened together with gold containing the names of the leaders of the tribes according to their original order, each one flashing in an indescribable way, its own peculiar color. We haven't finished his description, but I want to tell you something that is lost today. Anybody in here read horoscopes? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't admit to that, church. These 12 stones, an ancient historian in the day of Jesus named Josephus said the following about that. Then we're going to return to our previous letter. He said, and for the 12 stones, whether we understand them by months or whether we understand them like the number of signs of the circle, which the Greeks called the zodiac, we shall not be mistaken in their meaning. It seems that these 12 stones to the ancient people reminded them of something. All peoples in the world acknowledge 12 specific signs in the heavenly realms. The place where they imagined that God dwelt. They saw him surrounded by 12 peculiar sets of stars. 12 groupings surrounded God in their view of the heavens that they hoped would come to the earth. By the way, in almost every language in the world, one of those constellations is called Virgo. In almost every language, it means virgin. Do you think that the ancient people understood something by looking at the stars that maybe we don't? I'm not getting into astrology. Relax. How did the Magi find Jesus? They watched his star. Adam was told these things will be for you to mark the times and seasons. Men could look at the stars and it communicated something about the heavens. Have you noticed that everywhere in the Bible God is surrounded by twelve? His special man who can go behind the veil where no other man could go has got twelve stones on him. And what do they represent? The twelve groupings that God broke his people up in a movie for all mankind to see. It's like the God who is surrounded by the starry host is now on earth and he's surrounded by the starry host. The Bible says you should shine like the brightness of the heavens in this dark world. The Bible refers to you like stars. Do you think maybe a picture is being painted of a God who wants to dwell with man, but he wants to do it in all of his heavenly glory here on earth with you? See, there is a prescribed way. Let's get back to our letter of Aristarchus. On his head he wore a tiara. Think of that as a crown. It seems less strange. And as it is called, upon the middle of his forehead, an immutable turban. Now, when we think of turban, that's strange to us. In the ancient world, it was a sign of dignity. The royal diadem of full glory with the name of God inscribed in sacred letters on a plate of gold, having been judged worthy to wear these emblems in the menstruation, their appearance created such awe and confusion of mind as to make one feel that one had come into the presence of a man who belonged to a different world. 
Think about this, saints. I'm not just reading some old Judas letter. <laughs> I'm reading to you an ancient description of when people watched this movie being played out. These men wearing these things, doing these things. This is not a believer in his impressionless. This is like watching a movie where a man stepped from another world into ours. What is God trying to communicate with you? He's heavenly. He's surrounded by those stars. But he is sending a special man for a day of atonement with you. A man who can go behind the veil where no one else had ever gone. Because he's dealt with sin. He's been washed and he's ready to make atonement for you. He did this in Mikras. Holy festivals, holidays, year after year after year. Because he wanted to make sure you didn't miss it. He's trying to get your attention. As if he stepped from another world into this one. Who traveled the greatest distance for your meeting with God? You or him? Well, it's as if he stepped from another world into this one. Pick up with me in Leviticus 16.6. Aaron is to offer a bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoats. Do you have a footnote there? It says Azazel. So much mystery has surrounded the word Azazel. If you go home and you Google Azazel, I know all of you will be so interested in what we preach today. That, I mean, Billy can't wait to get out of here and go home and get on his computer and type in Azazel. You're going to find something really strange. People are going to say, it's a ghost god. It's a demon. No, wait. It's Satan. They're going to say, no, it's an archangel that fell. Azazel is a compound Hebrew word, and things have been so shrouded in mystery around it, just like they have the man who actually showed up and was this high priest. What do some say of Jesus? He's a good teacher. What do others say? He lies and deceives. I mean, obviously Hindus don't believe Jesus is telling the truth because he said, no man comes to the Father except through me. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What does even the nation of Israel believe about Jesus? It's all right. There's a day of atonement coming. There's much confusion surrounding Azazel. But I want to tell you it's a compound Hebrew word. You can look up on Net Bible if you so choose. The word Az, A-Z, means goat. That's not that complicated, huh? Sometimes they spell it easy. That's easy. Azel, A-Z-A-L, take away. The goat that takes away. So your NIV footnote may say the goat of removal. If you're reading it in another, language, in another translation, it may simply just say Azazel, like New American Standard does. People haven't known what to do with it, but God knew exactly what to do with it. It is like a movie being played out over and over and over so that on game day, people would know what was happening. We'll get back to that. Verse 7. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat, the Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Funny thing happens. When God's people don't do what God says, it doesn't portray the movie correctly. 
Imagine that you're an actor, right? Not so hard. Chris is now Tom Cruise. Right? So he's doing Top Gun. And the director says, you know, Chris, in this scene, you're going to be on a motorcycle. And you're going to be racing along the runway. And Chris says, yeah, yeah, I got it. And he goes and gets in a boat in the water. He's still Tom Cruise. He's still the actor. He's just not doing what the producer said. God gives very specific instructions that you can read about in Leviticus 16. The specific instructions involve taking two goats as one sin sacrifice. One's going to get to live carrying sin. The other's going to die for sin. But both goats represent one thing, one sin offering. By the way, the scapegoat, the Azazel, the goat that takes away, the high priest would come to. He would dip a cord in scarlet ink, crimson ink, and he would mark the scapegoat by wrapping it around his head. You can read about that if you like in the Talmud. I've got all the references. I spent the morning tracking them down so nobody would think that I misrepresented God. It would mark that goat's head crimson. Then it was to be led out into the desert to die. Interesting thing, though. God's people did not do what God said. Isn't that sad? When God's people don't do what he says? They found a Gentile to take these goats out, a goat out, because they didn't want to be associated with the task. The Bible says appoint a man. It didn't say which man. It was assumed it'd be an Israelite, but they chose a Gentile. They usually threw the goat off of a cliff happens when the one who is supposed to live to atone for sin gets killed. It's alright. There's two goats that he represents. One was supposed to die. Jesus is both of these. But an appointed man, a Gentile, is supposed to lead this goat with a crimson circle on his head out into the desert that he could live carrying the sins of the people. Can you imagine you've been thinking for ten days about every sin you had ever committed? And now a man is kneeling in front of you and he's got his hands upon the head of an animal. And that animal is literally going to carry away your sin. He put his sin on you. Come on now. That means what you were looking at on your computer last month, last week, yesterday, is now on that goat. The goat couldn't even get his little hooves to type. But now what you did is on him. Means that that few extra dollars that really didn't belong to you that you grafted, it's now on him. Means that person you flipped off in traffic or thought hateful thoughts about, it's now on him. The goat didn't do it, but it's now on him. God had a prescribed way. He wanted to meet with his people, but something had to be done with that sin. It would be put on somebody. He went off into what Leviticus calls. In 20 through 22, a solitary place. It's interesting because they took this cord after they marked this goat's head and they hung it on the temple door. And every year is a sign that God had carried away their sin on this Azazel. That cord turned white. That's tractate Shabbat, folio 86a. Yeah, can you imagine how hard it was for me to find that today? It's in the Babylonian Talmud. 
they recorded in history that every year at the Day of Atonement, that crimson cord turned white. Do you think maybe that's what this means in Isaiah 1, 18? You can turn there. We're done with Leviticus. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool, if you are willing and obedient. The king of the universe, the Malek Olam, wants to extend his rule into your life. He begins to lay out a prescribed way. He says there's going to be a special guy who can go behind the veil. He will be like somebody who stepped out of another world and into yours. He will make a way because he's going to take your sin and put it upon someone else. And you'll know that this has happened because the scarlet cord is going to turn white. God is able to do that. By the way, when he says scarlet and crimson, they're the same word, and it's the ink that comes from what is called an intolo worm. It's an indelible ink. It's the closest thing the ancient world had to permanent marker. You ever got permanent marker on your skin? You thought it'd never come off, but it did, didn't it? God says you think this stuff will never come off of you, but I'm able to make it come off of you every year. Trust me to John. Not John Dang, John the Apostle. Fourth book of the New Testament. Look at John 19 with me. Are y'all bored? Can you imagine the relief that you must have felt? Let's just say that you knew that your mom had sinned. Right? But mom's not admitting it. You knew. Nobody else knew. On the Day of Atonement, it didn't matter. You know why it didn't matter? Because the priest took sin you knew about and sin you did not know about. And he took it away because it was his promise to Israel. But she had ten days to think about it, didn't she? When I was a little boy, I stole the candy bar from a store. I came home and told my sister, who wanted to know where I got the candy bar. She blackmailed me and made me do dishes for a month. Or else she was going to tell mom and dad. And it afflicted my conscience. I was only seven. I walked into a 7-Eleven and shoved a candy bar down my pants. She told my parents anyway. After I did a month worth of dishes. I was 18 years old. And before I went to bed at night, I still ask God to forgive me for stealing that candy bar. Oh yeah, there was a whole long list. It started with the candy bar. It ended with all kinds of things that were presently going on in my life. But the day I met Jesus, I suddenly felt free from that. It was as if all of those ugly things I did had been put on Him. And He didn't deserve it. But He took it. In John 19, let's pick up around 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. 
When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation for the Passover week. It's funny, everything that they rehearsed, everything, whether it was Passover or it was Day of Atonement, whether we're talking about the altar of incense or the showbread, whether we're talking about the laver or we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, all of it, in some way, was a movie about Jesus. And when you really know Jesus, you can watch that Old Testament movie and you see him everywhere in it. Have you ever seen the wind? No. But you see its presence everywhere, don't you? You see the way that it moves things. I can see what God was trying to show us through repeating these things over and over and over. And it's one continuous message of, I want to meet with you. But there's something that has to be done first. You have sin and I want to take it from you. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. By the way, during this day, the Jews had been conquered by Rome. And when Rome conquered them, Rome took away the high priest's sacred garments. It was just kind of a way to say, we're better than you and we know it. you like somebody beat you up and took your letterman's jacket and then wore it around. When I was in high school, I took a young man's helmet. He went to a different school, and we were taught to protect our helmets. And it was a way to shame him. I stole his helmet. It's been a long time after I was born again trying to figure out how to give it back to him, but I couldn't find it. It's a good thing that it atones for sin that we know about and sin that we do not know about. Pilate was the owner of the high priest's sacred garments. They were kept in a fortress called Antonia. And he could bring them out, he could put them up, he could do anything that he wanted to with them to show ownership over the Jewish people. But they shouted, Take him, what's that Hebrew word? Azal. Azal. Take him away. It's as if standing before them, Jesus with a crown on his head, pressing into his forehead as king, leaving a crimson stain, made him appear before the people like the goat, the Oz, and they said, Take him away. Azal. And people didn't realize it. They had rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. But they didn't realize it. And now a Gentile is going to lead him out to a solitary place. They're not supposed to kill the Azazel. He's supposed to bear the sin of the people. But a funny thing happens. And God's people sinning, missing the mark, not doing what God said, he still used it to atone for your sin. Because there were two goats. One died, one lived, and Jesus was both. Because he was raised from the dead and he still lives to bear your sin. What an amazing event. Saints, you could not care. You could hear this and say, what difference does it make to me? It makes a tremendous difference to the Jewish nation. You know what started happening after that day? The Babylonian Talmud in a book called Yoma, the 39th verse, part B, says this. Our rabbis taught that during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the crimson-colored strap stopped becoming white. Non, 
Christian people, people who were not believers in Messiah, the temples destroyed in 70 A.D., said about 40 years beforehand, our cords stopped turning white. There is only one way to get rid of your sin, and he has shown up. Hebrews 9.26 says, But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The rehearsal is over. The reality is here. What have you done with it? And by the way, you could say, Man, that is amazing. The cords stopped turning white. But it's good because we have Jesus. What does that mean for those people? who do not have Jesus. Their sin still remains. Where are you in all of this? Is your cord white or red? Has your sin been carried away or has your sin remained? When you lay down on your bed at night, is your conscience at ease or is it still bothered? And those of you who have found Jesus and been found by Him, do you care whether that burden is upon a tire nation or not? How many years did they labor to play out this movie to show you what you now know? Do you care whether they come into the fullness of it or not? Every man's heart will be revealed. Every man's heart will be revealed. And what started in Israel in shadow and type will finish in Israel in reality. Those of you who are born again, you cannot be born again and resurrected until Israel is. Those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, what you need to know is God wants to meet with you. It starts with a man's choice. The king's rulership is already perfectly recognized there. He wants to bring that into your life. It's like living in heaven. Now, Jesus sat with his disciples at a meal. The meal happened at a Passover time. He was teaching them about death passing over. And he did something that must have seemed quite odd to them. He did what Jewish grooms do. It's hard to imagine now, but there was a time I was courting Jennifer. And the way we courted in Baton Rouge, Louisiana was quite different than the way the Hebrews court. I came to her house in a little red Toyota pickup truck. I knocked on her door, asked for her parents' permission to take her to a movie. And we went to see Gremlins 2. <laughs> then we came home, we parked in the driveway, walked to the door, and what happens at the door? Right? The light comes on and you try to sneak in a kiss. <laughs> And this was the beginning of our courtship. In the Hebrew culture, that is not courtship. There were no cars. There were no gremlin movies. There was no electric light at the door. But what there was is a courageous Jewish groom who would stand and offer his bride a glass of wine. And he would say, like I would say to Jennifer, if you will come to be my wife, you will be for me a treasured Possession Out of everyone on the planet, nobody will be quite like you will be to me. If she drank from that cup, it was as good as done in God's eyes. Although a time period would go by, and she would go back to her daddy's house, and I would go back to my daddy's house. 
I would begin to build onto our family dwelling every day. Working, it's called an insula. It's like a multi-family dwelling. And I would build onto it and work and work and work and turn to seek my father's approval because only he knew when the building was complete and it was okay to go get my bride. It had to meet his level of satisfaction. And when it was time to go get my bride, she wouldn't know what day or hour because I didn't know what day or hour. It could be nighttime. It could be morning. We would take shofars and tambourines, and we would dance through the streets and blow trumpets. And she could hear the trumpets in the distance, but it would be some time before I would be there. And when I got there, it would be a brand new creation. There would be a redemption. There would be a changing of names. There would be a brand new wedding ceremony. She might even put a little light called a lamp in her window to make sure I could find her at night. Well, Jesus offered his disciples a cup. He said, in this cup, I make a new covenant with you. A covenant in my blood. It's like he took the favorite elements from all of the micros, all of the movies that they've been playing out, and he merged them in one event. He is the Passover lamb. He is the day of atonement. He is the Azazel. All of those in one event. And he says, if you'll be betrothed to me, if you will be betrothed to me, I will dwell with you. He said, we're not going to get to do this again until we do it anew in my Father's kingdom. And they expected that kingdom to be here upon the earth. When we take communion together here in a few minutes on the Day of Atonement, Israel's national salvation, you need to realize something's come to us that somebody else worked for. We are now taking a cup and promising to be married to Jesus, to take his name, to believe that he has taken your sin away, to walk forward in a new creation. And as we do that, we believe that he will do it for his own people who labored to bring you the story. It's Israel's day of atonement. The mystery is that it could be yours too. On the day of atonement, it could be your day of atonement too. These two little girls found it last night. They don't know all of the little nuances. They don't know all of the details. Children's movies are different than adult movies. The plot is more complex and some. But I bet they'd understand it on the level that was appropriate for their age. I don't know on what level you understand the things that I said today, but it can be your day of atonement just like it's Israel's. It'd be a sad thing to walk out of a movie and not have understood even the most basic plot. We're going to worship together. As we begin to worship, we're going to take communion. So at any point in this that you would like to, Everybody in here is free to. The requirements are that you want to do things God's way. You want to meet with Him on His terms regardless of what that means. You don't care just how cool your friends are. You don't care what people think about you. You want to step out and do it God's way because somebody has come from another world right into yours to make a way where there was no way. That's the requirement. If you meet that requirement, everybody in here is free to do that. You'll come, you'll get a cup, you'll get a piece of bread. As we worship, at some point, the people of God together will be atoned for in a single day, all at the same time, as a rehearsal of what is happening to Israel on a single day that Zechariah 13.1 says will wash away their sin. You want to worship? Yes. Now stand to your feet.
we don't have ten days for all. I know you're glad. We have 20 minutes. But in these next 20 minutes, if you spend some time of introspection, in what ways your family let down God? In what ways your nation let down God? In what way have you let down God? And realize He wants to take all of that away so that He can meet with you. And that is worth getting right. And you can walk out of here new. You can walk out of here with a renewed purpose in life. You should walk out of here with a renewed purpose in life. Blemish free. Without accusation. Let's worship together.